0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss one of the most interesting First Amendment questions that the Supreme Court is taking up this term, should elected judges be allowed to ask for Campaign donations, the debate focuses on the First Amendment rights of judges to ask personally for money, uh, and it has to be balanced against concerns that it's improper for judges to ask directly for funds in any context. Judges are elected in 39 states, and in 30 of those states, there are laws or ethics provisions that ban judicial candidates from personally asking for campaign donations. And the question in the case that the Supreme Court just heard, Williams-Yulee v. Florida Barr, is whether those bans are consistent with the First Amendment. Uh, the case involves Linnell williams julie a candidate for county clerk judge in Florida who personally signed a campaign fundraising letter in 2009, uh, and the Florida Bar said that violated the state's code of judicial conduct. The Florida Supreme Court uh, agreed that the Florida Bar's ass- uh, assessment, that the mass mailing violated uh, the judicial conduct and the question before the Supreme Court is whether that canon is consistent with the First Amendment. Joining us to discuss the case are two of the leading civil libertarians in the United States, also two of the leading experts on judicial and First Amendment questions in America, and uh, it is uh, fascinating and significant that they are on opposite sides of this case. Bob Cornrevere is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine in Washington, D.C. He writes extensively on First Amendment and communications-related issues. He wrote the amicus brief for the American Civil Liberties Union in the Williams-Julee case, also obtained the first posthumous pardon in New York history for the late comedian Lenny Bruce. Bert Newborn is the NS mill Holland Professor of Civil Liberties, and Founding Legal legal Director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. He has been one of the nation's foremost civil liberties lawyers for 50 years. He also submitted an amicus brief in this case as a past leader of the ACLU, along with other ACLU leaders, and he is the author of the forthcoming and superb book, Madison's Music. Thanks so much, uh, Bob and Bert, for joining us today, and let's jump right into it. Bob, you were at the arguments on Tuesday If you could describe the basic uh, facts of the case, give us a sense of how many states have rules barring direct solicitation by uh, judicial candidates, and uh, uh, I think that would be a great way of starting us off.
1: Uh, okay, Jeff, thanks, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast, and uh, also I want to just say what a thrill it is to be able to discuss this case with Burt Newborn, whose career I have admired for years and whose work is just terrific in this area. Uh, I agree it is is somewhat ironic that we are on opposite sides of the case, and one other note I should say before getting into it as well is, while I did file the brief on behalf of the ACLU, I'm not appearing in this podcast as a spokesperson, person for the ACLU, but I'm happy to uh, discuss the issues. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, the case arose in Florida when a candidate for judgeship in Hillsborough County, Florida, Linnell Williams-Ulee, in running for office, uh, did send out a mass direct fundraising appeal uh, above the candidate's signature, the letter that she wrote sought An early contribution of $25, $50, $100, $250, or $500 made payable to Linnell Williams-Julie Campaign for County Judge to help raise initial funds needed to launch the campaign and to get our message out to the public. That letter drew a complaint against Williams-Julie in the Supreme Court of Florida, alleging a violation of Florida Bar Canon 7C1, which prohibits that kind of direct appeal and upon referral to a referee, there was a recommended finding of guilt, but because it was determined that the um, violation was inadvertent and a mistake in understanding what the canon meant, there was no um, sanction other than a reprimand, and uh, Ms. Williams-Julie was uh, required to pay the costs of the complaint, which I think were around $1,800. The uh, Florida Supreme Court upheld these findings and the sanctions and held that there was a compelling interest in preserving judicial integrity supporting the canon and that there must be public confidence in an impartial judiciary and it held further that the restriction was narrowly tailored to address the issue and that um, uh, there were ample alternative avenues of communication because the canon does allow separate fundraising fundraising committees now as you mentioned uh, there are Mm -hmm. A number of states that uh, have canons like this. Uh, 39 states hold some form of judicial election, and of those, 30 of them have um, these kinds of prohibitions.
0: Great. Thank you so much for that excellent introduction. So, Bert, let's jump right into the constitutional uh, dispute. It was a decade ago, in 2002 that the Supreme Court struck down a state regulation forbidding candidates for judicial office from discussing controversial public issues. That was the white case. And one of the big questions in this case is whether the court will extend the regime of campaign finance protections for free speech that it's been embracing in cases from Buckley versus Vallejo to Citizens United to the judicial context. At the oral arguments, Justice Ginsburg pressed counsel about the differences between legislative and Um, judicial elections. In your brief uh, for past leaders at the ACLU, you argue that judicial elections are quite different than political ones, and you say that the four reasons recognized by the Supreme Court in Buckley v. Vallejo for regulating uh, the finances of judicial elections do not apply in the judicial context. Uh, Please summarize why you think the judicial elections are constitutionally different than legislative elections.
2: Sure, Jeff. I'm, I'm delighted to appear and, and delighted to appear with Bob, whose work I know well. And uh, This is a kind of mutual admiration society, although we're on different sides of this case. Um, the whole idea of electing judges um, is an anomalous idea. Uh, obviously, the federal system um, has federal judges who are appointed by the president, and the way the federal system is structured, they're insulated from politics. They serve for life, their salaries can't be changed, um, uh, so that the whole theory of having federal judges is that the federal judges will stand apart from politics um, and will decide the cases based on their um, um, neutral and impartial understanding about what the outcome is. Um, For years, the assumption had been that state elections were a kind of an anomalous um, uh, 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 intrusion into that principle, um, and that the state elections should take place um, uh, without the judges saying anything about substance, without the, judge, without the candidates um, uh, actually taking positions or doing the kinds of things that we would expect a, a candidate for, for electoral office to take. Um, and as you correctly point out, in 2002, the Supreme Court said, look, um, electing judges may be a very bad idea, but if a state chooses to elect judges, it has to have a real election. Um, and that real election means that the people have to, the, the voters have to at least have have an opportunity to understand the positions of the judges um, on important issues so they can cast an intelligent vote. But they were very careful in the white case to say that judicial elections may well be different because of the nature of what a judge does. I mean, the central difference between what a judge does and what a a legislator or an executive official does is a judge, once the judge is elected, is expected to be absolutely impartial um, and not to tilt toward his political supporters um, and not to engage in the kind of behavior that we expect and indeed want congressional people to do. If you're elected um, um, uh, as a congressman, um, you've made promises to the electorate. You've made pledges that you're going to carry out certain policies, and the whole underlying structure of democracy depends upon your trying to carry those uh, promises out. Um, uh, Promises by a judge um, would make it very difficult for people who were appearing before that judge to think that the judge was in any way impartial. So we start with the strange anomaly of these judicial elections where we want the people to know enough to make informed judgments about who they're voting for, but we don't want the judge to lock himself or herself into a position that interferes with the mandate of judicial impartiality. Now, when you take that over to raising money, a, you have to let judges raise enough money to be able to have a real campaign or else the, the white decision, uh, this 2002 decision, would be meaningless. So they have to be allowed uh, to raise a significant amount of money and, ro- and, um, and do real elections. But the question is, how do they do it? Um, are they going uh, to raise the money in a way that gives rise to an assumption, either by the public or by litigants or by uh, observers, um, that they are somehow bound to the people who gave them the money. So, for example, a litigant making a contribution to a judge uh, would create a terrible feeling in the courtroom uh, that the judge was going to tilt toward one side rather than the other, or an attorney doing it. Um, and the question is, in order to stop that from happening, Can the states engage in a kind of prophylaxis? Can they say, look, the only way to stop that from happening is to say that the judge can't personally ask for money. People who support him can ask for money, but he can not or she can't personally ask for money because that would threaten the integrity and partiality of the process.
0: And that was basically
2: the argument in the Supreme Court.
0: Uh, Bob, Burt has well summarized uh, the arguments in the Supreme Court, and indeed, in exchange between Justice Scalia and uh, Mr. Richard, uh, there was a dispute about precisely this point, about whether it's appropriate in a democratic society, as Justice Scalia said In a Republican form of government, candidates in the other two branches are expected to commit themselves in advance to certain positions. When we're talking about judges, this is Mr. Richards talking to Scalia, there's no good responsiveness to a supporter or contributor. Judges are expected to be impartial. Uh, What is your response to uh, Bert's uh, point and and, and Mr. Richards' point that judges and legislators are different in that sense and for that reason, individual judges should never be able to make direct solicitations?
1: Well, I, I think that very issue is the heart of the case, and it is the very reason why we're so uncomfortable talking about judges as candidates. The central choice here is whether or not to select judges by means of popular election or by selection as done, uh, and appointment as done in the federal system. And I think once you make that choice to use popular elections – A number of things follow from that, and none of them um, are are very easily addressed. Um, So, for example, if you look at the interest put forward by the state of Florida in support of Canon 7C1, you look at the issue of judicial integrity or, as Justice Scalia uh, framed it during the argument, judicial dignity. Um, and uh, Justice Ginsburg asked about candidates, about judicial candidates being above the political fray. Well, once you have made judges into candidates that are asking for people's votes, they are not above the political fray. And as Bert mentioned during his presentation a moment ago, judges then have to be candidates, they have to be able to talk about issues, and they have to be able to raise a certain amount of money. The question is whether or not having a direct uh, fundraising appeal. Um, is somehow furthered or somehow undermines that interest, and the interest in preventing uh, a bad appearance is furthered by the judicial canon. Um, The second issue or the second interest um, advanced by the state of Florida was that there must be public confidence in an impartial judiciary. And again, once you have judges involved in a political contest, Um, you have difficulty meeting that objective. And so, you know, I think as the Chief Justice asked during uh, during the argument, once you've made the choice of proceeding by election, you have a hard burden to overcome in terms of justifying what kind of restrictions you're going to be imposing. And the question here is whether or not the Canon 7C1 imposed by the Florida Bar actually serves the interests that the state uh, uh, purports to serve by them or whether or not it simply uh, is an issue that is really more something that flows from the fact that you're electing judges in the first place. Now, for purposes of the argument that we made before the court, uh, the ACLU took no position on electing judges, and um, that's certainly uh, a position that many people defend. My personal position is that judges should not be candidates and that once you've made the choice to make them candidates, then uh, First Amendment issues then override these kinds of restrictions that states try to impose.
0: Bert, um, there is a logic to Bob's argument uh, and the one that the ACLU made that once you have judicial uh, elections, then the First Amendment uh, should apply much of the oh, I think the, yeah. court, just 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 to, to, to flesh it out a bit a question in the before the court was, are these restrictions effective? And as Bob said, uh, the opponents argued, once you're going to allow judges to send a thank you note in response to individual contributions as several of the justices stressed, and also to instruct their committees about who to approach the additional ban on direct solicitations is ineffective and it's a minimal burden on speech. What is your response to that point which seems so important to many of the justices?
2: So that's that's clearly the strongest argument in favor of the constitutionality of the uh, of, of the, uh, the unconstitutionality of the Florida um, uh, ordinance um, and there's a tendency to discuss this case at a level of abstraction which is important about whether judges should be elected whether judges should uh, uh, be allowed to uh, uh, engage in personal solicitation um, uh, but of course th- this is a real case with real people and real facts um, and the real uh, facts of this case is that the, the argument is that the Florida canon is so honeycombed with exceptions um, uh, that it doesn't really um, advance the interest that it claims to advance. For example, Florida disclosure laws mean that um, um, any judicial candidate can quickly find out who's making contributions to them and who's not. Um, uh, the Florida law um, allows the, um, the contributions to be solicited by a hand-picked proxy. Um, where the judge chooses the person to do the solicitation for her. Um, And finally, uh, it even allows the judge to write a thank you note uh, to somebody who has made the contribution. Now, so the argument is, when you put those three things together, that the judge knows who's being naughty or nice, uh, that the judge picks the person who's doing the solicitation, and the judge actually has the right to acknowledge it uh, in a letter. They said, what's the big deal if the judge signs the letter herself? Um, um, and that's the, that's the rub. The question is, does, is there something special about the personal solicitation uh, which either puts more pressure, for example, on a lawyer to contribute, if a lawyer um, uh, is, thinks that the lawyer is going to be before the judge at some point or might be before the judge, or puts pressure on a litigant, uh, or makes the public think um, that the judge would be more disappointed Uh, if you don't respond to a personal solicitation uh, or more grateful if you do respond to a personal solicitation than this kind of backdoor solicitation by a proxy. And I think reasonable people can can differ over that. I mean, I think a reasonable person could say that the Florida statute or Florida canon is so riddled with exceptions that it doesn't really carry out its role and therefore it's unconstitutional. And it's entirely possible the court's going to hold that. I would argue that the stakes here are so high, the stakes of maintaining a judiciary that we can believe in, that we can believe that is impartial, that we will accept a, a decision that goes against what we think is, um, the outcome should be because we respect the process. The stakes of having a judiciary like that are so high and so huge that I would defer to Florida's judgment that they wanna have a risk-averse kind of prophylaxis here, that they wanna say, look, um, sure, reasonable people can say, uh, can differ about whether personal is different than proxy, but we think reasonable. some reasonable people think that personal is different than proxy, and we want to bend over backwards to make sure that we protect our judiciary, especially since we give the judges a perfectly good alternative way to raise as much money as they think they need without putting their personal status on the line. Um, and that's, that's what I hope they will rule. Um, but, of course, Bob's argument about the, uh, uh, the honeycombed and riddled nature of the
0: ordinance is- is accurate. It's it's not the world's best thought out ordinance. Bob, as, as Bert says, much of the argument did come down to this question of whether face-to-face solicitations are different. Both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer said, look, when I call up a lawyer and ask them to do something, the answer is always going to be yes. That's just the nature of the hierarchical position between judges and lawyers. Uh, how significant do you think that question of the inherent coercion of face-to-face solicitation is going to be before the Supreme Court.
1: I think it really does come down to that. And, and first, let me just say, I think Bert's summary of the problems of Canon 7C1 was so succinct and so persuasive, I can't believe we're on different sides of the case. Uh, <laughs> you, you can know, switch and, if you like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think we are pretty interchangeable in most of these cases. But, uh, you know, the, the, the difficulty is Canon 7C1 only prohibits candidates from saying, please, it does not prevent them from saying thank you. Hell, they can even host a barbecue for everyone who contributed to campaign. And so if you look at the specific goals that Canon 7c1 attempts to uh, address, first preventing quid pro quo corruption, that is judicial candidates essentially selling verdicts uh, for for political support. I mean, the fact that... All candidates are going to have contributors. They're going to have a committee that then goes out and raises money, and they're going to be subject to all of the pressures of the electoral process. Nothing in Canon 7C1 addresses the quid pro quo corruption issue. The second interest, um, promoting impartiality and preventing bias. Again, once you have contributors, once you're part of the political fray, you're going to face those problems. The only issue, and it's the one that you just isolated, that 7C1 even attempts to address is the protection against coercion uh, where you, have, uh, you want to prevent uh, lawyers from being strong-armed by judges who are running for, for office. But here, as, as Bert said, this is a real case with real facts, and in this case, that wasn't the circumstance. You had a judge who was not an incumbent sending out a letter that, by the way, got no responses at all asking generally and not lawyers or litigants for contributions. Uh, And, um, you know, in that circumstance, there is absolutely no danger that that was going to be a coercive uh, situation. Now, Burt's defense of this is to say that because the stakes are so high that we need to be able to adopt a risk-averse prophylaxis and the state should be able to err on the side of restricting speech. My view of the First Amendment is that it works in the opposite way, that it is the government's burden to demonstrate uh, not only that there is a sufficient interest in restricting speech in any given instance, and we can all agree that this is an important interest, but it also has to demonstrate that the means it has chosen are narrowly tailored to address that interest and that they do, in fact, address that interest. And that's where I think Canon 7C1 falls down.
0: Um. Bert, there's, a, uh, of course, a logic to Bob's argument. Once the First Amendment kicks in, then strict scrutiny applies and uh, the deference that you call for is, is ordinarily not applied. L- let me ask a practical question. You've, as Bob says, succinctly identified the the flaws in the statute. If the Supreme Court were to strike down uh, Florida's ban on direct solicitation, could Florida and the 30 other states that have these bans pass a version of a ban that would not be riddled with exceptions that might pass constitutional muster, and what would that ban look like?
2: Yeah, well, of course, the irony of Bob's position is that uh, he says that um, um, a, a, uh, an ordinance like Florida, where they bent over backwards to try to allow the judge the most possible activity, um, uh, gives so much activity to the judge that it, uh, it is ineffective and therefore is unconstitutional. And therefore, what the First Amendment requires is a more restrictive regulation, um, uh, which uh, which doesn't have uh, uh, loopholes and doesn't have uh, uh, any of the uh, uh, problems that the Florida uh, Ban has. It's a, there's an irony in the, uh, in the argument, and you, Jeff, put your finger on exactly the, uh, the importance. Uh, th- this case um, is not important um, based on whether face to face is different than uh, uh, having a proxy. Uh, they'll decide it one way, they'll decide it the other, and the world will go on. Um, what is really important about this case is how they decide that question. If they say that, um, that the funding of judicial elections is just like the funding of legislative elections, and they unleash the strict scrutiny uh, model that they use in Buckley versus Vallejo to strike down virtually every effort to regulate um, the um, uh, the political uh, fundraising, um, and they just roll that over onto the judiciary, Um, that would be, I think, um, that that would be a disastrous way to decide this case. They could do it, but it would mean that from now on, uh, we will elect our judges in the same way that we elect um, uh, everybody else, which means that the top 1%, uh, top one-tenth of 1% of the population and corporations having significant interests to protect will pour money into judicial elections, um, and there'll be no way to regulate that, and you will wind up with a judiciary that's bought and paid for by the special interests, and that inevitably, inevitably will cause the erosion of faith um, in a judicial system with terrible consequences for the system generally. Uh, So my hope is no matter what they do with the narrow question of whether face-to-face is different than having proxies, they answer that question using something other than strict scrutiny because, as Bob will immediately agree, the First Amendment doesn't automatically trigger strict scrutiny. Uh, there's a category of First Amendment behavior that we call um, uh, that, that triggers something called intermediate First Amendment scrutiny, um, uh, and it is um, it's communicative conduct rather than pure speech. Now, you could characterize the, the, uh, a judge's solicitation of money from a person who has some form of hierarchical relation to the judge as something other than just pure speech. It's a, there's a whiff of coercion in the air that would allow you to say that there's some conduct going on here. Um, and if what they say is we're going to use the communicative conduct standard, which lawyers shorthand saying it's O'Brien, it's the standard they used in the draft card burning case to uphold the constitutionality of, draft, of, of criminal, criminalizing draft card burning. They said draft card burning is communicative, but it also has um, a, a conduct element, and that conduct element can be regulated um, as long as the, it's narrowly tailored and as long as there's an important interest, and as long as it's not uh, uh, viewpoint-aimed. Now, the Florida ban doesn't have a chance of surviving under Buckley. It won't survive five minutes under Buckley. But if you use the O'Brien standard, then there's a fighting chance. Then the question is how much prophylaxis do you allow? They allowed the government a great deal of prophylaxis in the draft card burning cases. Um, Will they allow the government the same kind of prophylaxis in the judicial financing cases? Now, I think they were wrong. They gave the government too much um, um, uh, prophylaxis in Um, O'Brien. But if they use anything close to the same standard, The Florida ordinance has a fighting
0: chance of survival. Bob, Bird has made uh, two strong points, and I'm eager for your response. First, he says that the court should, even if it upholds the Florida ban, treat uh, judicial speech as different than legislative speech because of the coercive element of a solicitation. It's closer to communicative conduct than pure speech. I wonder if you agree with that, or do you think The court should essentially treat legislative and judicial speech as indistinguishable. And if it does, do you agree with Bert that this would essentially impose the whole Citizens United regime on judicial elections and would have, uh, as he called it, disastrous practical consequences?
1: Well, I think that we, we don't need to prepare for Armageddon yet. Uh, <laughs> the disastrous Consequences are overstating things Just a bit and I think there's really Not uh, the the irony In the position here that uh, the Burt Suggests we're not looking for more restrictions On speech uh, we're simply Pointing out that the Florida canon Is so badly drafted It couldn't survive even rational basis Scrutiny uh, let alone uh, Higher levels of scrutiny um, The Solution as I suggested earlier is not to elect Judges but once you do then you do have to deal with the First Amendment consequences. And that doesn't mean that you have to immediately go to strict scrutiny. Bird is absolutely correct that First Amendment uh, scrutiny doesn't always mean strict scrutiny. And in fact, uh, the court's uh, recent ca- cases involving uh, campaign reform measures in which it has struck them down has said it doesn't need to decide what level of scrutiny is, is required. And most recently, McCutcheon v. FEC said that even under intermediate scrutiny, the restrictions on aggregate campaign uh, contributions uh, wouldn't survive judicial. Review. Now, in terms of that, in terms of trying to squeeze this case into an intermediate re- review standard that you would for in United States versus O'Brien burning draft cards, I really have to take exception with the idea of characterizing this as some sort of communicative conduct. I mean, we're talking about a candidate who wrote. A letter, and not even just writing a letter, just signed a letter. That was the infraction here, and so uh, it's hard to describe that as as conduct in any way. It really is pure speech. Now, I'm not suggesting that dictates the level of scrutiny as a constitutional matter, but uh, you know, given other factors, but it certainly is not uh, a conduct. And whether or not the fact that it's signed by a non-incumbent candidate uh, carries a whiff of coercion, uh, I think uh, Andy Pincus, who argued the case for William Julee, put this well when he used an example of the kind of letter that could be permitted under the Florida Canon, where the head of the campaign uh, um, fundraising committee for a candidate could write a letter that says, Dear Joe... As an attorney frequently appearing before the, um, let's I can find the rest of it here before the county court, we're sure you're concerned with the quality of the judiciary. Judge Jones personally asked us to serve on his campaign committee, and we're writing you to ask you to contribute to his reelection. As you know, Florida law permits Judge Jones to thank contributors, so that would be permitted. And if there's a whiff of coercion in a candidate signing a letter. Uh, there, there, there's one in, in, in that as well, uh, and so again, um, I, I think this kind of restriction wouldn't survive even intermediate scrutiny, uh, let alone uh, stricter scrutiny. Uh, and, and with, with respect to that, one other point, and that is. You know, I always thought the United States versus O'Brien, the draft card burning case, was wrongly decided. That uh, you know that the movement toward intermediate scrutiny was a mistake on the part of the court. And if we're worried about leading down a path to co- to Armageddon and bad First Amendment consequences, I think uh, loosening scrutiny by the court when we're talking about political speech is the surest way to do that. And by strengthening precedents like O'Brien, uh, is certainly a bad Now, would striking down the Florida canon lead to a judiciary that is bought and paid for? Well, certainly not. Uh, It doesn't change a thing in that regard, in that uh, you still have judges that are candidates, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the central problem here.
0: Uh, Bert, there's a vigorous and principled debate within the ACLU about whether or not Citizens United is correct. We had a phenomenal debate with Intelligence Squared here at the National Constitution Center where you uh, 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 debated uh, Bert Newborn um, and – Uh, about whether Citizens United was correct, and in that that debate, the audience voted on your side. Um, My question is, is is this the natural extension of uh, Citizens United to the judicial context? Once you've said that the First Amendment applies to judicial elections, and once you've said that the First Amendment prohibits restrictions on corporate campaign contributions, is is there a sort of inevitability to the idea of the Supreme Court uh, basically extending all of the Citizens United protections to judicial elections?
2: Well, that of course is one of the central central issues in this particular case. I mean, um, uh, you know, Jeff, that uh, that, that my. Career, the, the 50 years of, uh, of practice as a civil rights, civil liberties lawyer, is intimately bound up with the ACLU. I served as ACLU national legal director during the Reagan presidency um, and um, loved the organization and supported um, in an unqualified way. I happen to disagree uh, with the ACLU's position on uh, funding. Uh, campaigns, uh, because I think it harms the very democracy that the First Amendment is designed to protect. Um, um, but I understand the ACLU's position. The ACLU is simply playing out a logical game. I mean, it's, they're saying that if you go from uh, step one, then it's logical to go to step two, and it's logical to go to step three, and it's logical to go to step four. Um, and I don't I don't resist the logic of their position what I do is I resist the correctness of being driven um, uh, by um, uh, a kind of remorseless relentless logic that forces you into positions where you can't uh, where where you in some sense destroy or not destroys too strong harm the institution that you're trying to protect Uh, nobody would suggest for example that free speech requires that in a judicial context um, you allow people to buy time nobody would say that you should be able to purchase how, many, how much time you have before the jury or buy how long your brief is going to be so that the rich guy gets an advantage. Nobody would suggest in an academic context uh, that you should allow money to decide uh, which side gets better arguments or longer arguments um, in deciding academic issues. Um, my position inside the ACLU is that an election is a bounded institution And that when you allow, when you don't, when you don't recognize that restrictions within that bounded institution are needed to make the institution work, to make the institution work the way we want it to work. The First Amendment and this is my book, Madison's Music, says that Madison thought that the First Amendment was democracy's best friend. Now, how does it happen that over time um, we've allowed the the First Amendment to erode basic protections of the idea of one person, one vote, um, and the idea of egalitarian democracy to the point where no one who looks at American democracy thinks that we're politically equal anymore. I mean, nobody can claim that, that, that that, that an individual has anything close to the kind of power that the Koch brothers do, or on the left that the various wealthy people that fund the left, uh, we've got a we've got a democracy that is a one dollar one vote democracy, um, and we've drifted into it through this slow. Position of logically extending the First Amendment further and further and further until we wake up one day um, and the democracy doesn't look like anything we hoped that it would. And my plea is that the, both the ACLU and the court stop um, and adopt Justice Breyer's position and says, "Look, it's a democracy we're trying to defend here. Not the First Amendment. The First Amendment is a is is not an end in itself. It's a means toward a better society, toward a toward a uh, an egalitarian democracy.
0: And we ought to start reinterpreting it that way." Great. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been a superb discussion, and it's time for closing arguments. Uh, I'm gonna ask you both uh the same question Bob how should the Supreme Court rule in this case, and how do you think it will rule? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, two very different questions. Uh first of all, I think that the uh, Supreme Court will invalidate the uh Florida ban uh or let me actually I, I started out by saying they are different questions and then answered the wrong one. I think it should invalidate the uh the Florida ban uh on uh, direct uh, uh uh request for um fundraising by judicial candidates simply because the um the restriction that is imposed Performs no function whatsoever other than to restrict speech. Uh, It um, doesn't prevent fund uh, campaigns, which I think are the central problem. And for the uh, parade of horribles that Burgess just laid out, that uh, democracy is at risk because it's one dollar one vote. This case really has nothing to do with that issue. Uh, This case simply asks whether or not once you've made judges into candidates, whether you can put one symbolic and meaningless restriction on what they do that does nothing other than muzzle a candidate without the government being able to demonstrate that that's going to serve any particular purpose. Uh, And to confuse that with a larger issue, of whether or not you should have broader types of campaign reform or even in this case, narrower kinds of campaign restrictions uh, is really to confuse the issue. Um, and so I, I do think the court should reject the Florida ban. Whether it will do so is something various people can debate. Our predictions today aren't going to mean much by June. Um, but uh, I think it's probably likely that the court will invalidate the ban based on watching the oral arguments. But uh, you never know in, in, in advance.
0: Great. Thanks so much for that. Bert, how should the court rule in this case and how will it rule? I think the court should rule that the funding of
2: judicial campaigns um, is uh, is a different process than the funding of political campaigns because of the difference in the judicial role. Uh, and that in funding judicial campaign in regulating the funding of judicial campaigns as long as the state doesn't interfere with the ability to raise sufficient money to be able to conduct a meaningful campaign that the state should have some latitude to be able to pick out types of speech during that campaign Uh, that threaten the integrity of the judicial process, either threaten public confidence in it uh, or place uh, undue pressure on participants, such as litigants uh, or attorneys, to decide whether they want to contribute or not, Um, and that they should um, adopt uh, a level of First Amendment scrutiny uh, that allows the state more um, regulatory latitude uh, than they do in uh, legislative elections. Now, how do I think they will do it? I think they um, I think that it's likely they're going to strike down the ban. Uh, the only question is, how are they going to strike down the ban? Oh, I think it's not the only, but the most, uh, for me the question is, how are they likely to strike down the ban? If they were to strike down the ban by adopting uh, intermediate scrutiny and by saying there's going to be some regulatory latitude here, but, the, but Florida's done a horrible job, and you've got to go back and do a better job if you're going to do this, um, that wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, if, on the other hand, they strike the ban down by simply rolling buckley Valeo. Uh, Buckley versus Vallejo and Citizens United over and rolling it over onto judicial campaigns, then I think we're in for a very rocky time. And then I think the idea of elected judges will really turn out to be a kind of Frankenstein
0: inside the system. Thank you, Bob Revere and Bert Newborn, for a nuanced, illuminating, and intelligent discussion of this fascinating First Amendment issue Ladies and gentlemen, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.